The following message by Brother Doug Birch is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 28. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and be chief and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him, and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is, it, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in his glory of his Father with his angels." And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. First of all, I, I asked, I requested uh, that those scriptures that Brother Matt read be given. Because in this context, Jesus, and not just here, but all over the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over again. An overwhelming number of times, if you compare that, what we consider him. We, we call him the Christ, the Messiah. He is, and he never denied that. But when he referred to himself, the overwhelming majority of the time, he said, the Son of Man. Well, I, that interested me, and I looked at the phrase... And the reason that I requested Brother Matt begin with Daniel there is because it's that context in Daniel where Daniel is having this vision and one like unto the Son of Man is seen 
coming in the clouds and speaking to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and receiving from the Ancient of Days this kingdom, this dominion that lasts forever and ever. It is significant that the children of Israel understood what that was referring to. The Son of Man was their coming Messiah. And so they looked for Him. And every time He would speak of Himself, He would say, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That phrase is used in the Scripture almost 200 times, the Son of Man. Now, a lot of times in the Old Testament, it's literally the Son of Adam. And it's referring to, in those contexts, just humanity. In fact, a lot of the time in the book of Ezekiel, some 90-something times, that phrase is used, Son of Adam or Son of Man, to refer to Ezekiel, talking about his humanity. Speaking in, 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 by extension, this is, this is what I call the human race, the son of men. And when it comes to Daniel's reference, it's a little bit of a different word there. It's son of mankind. It's still speaking of humanity. The same thing is in the New Testament. Son of man is literally son of anthropos, you know, like we get our word anthropology. So it is mankind. But he calls himself the son of man to link it with Daniel's reference. I am the son of man. And there is no question that the people understood what he was talking about when he called himself that because they were very familiar with that passage in Daniel. So every single time he said the son of man referring to himself, they knew who he was talking about. And so with our context, our, our text today in Matthew it is noteworthy that when he begins the, the discourse asking his disciples, he asks him them in verse 13, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Identifying himself as the same one who is spoken about in the book of Daniel, the one who is going to receive the kingdom, the one who is going to receive dominion that lasts forever and ever. And so he poses this question as he's going. And now here's another thing. The context here, this is in the final year of his ministry. And that's very crucial for us to understand. Because, and here's, here's the thing. I'll just go ahead and let you know where I'm headed. When we talk about salvation, we, it's just a no-brainer, especially if we've been in church. We talk about salvation as it relates to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, taking our place, taking our sin upon Him, that we might be saved. But it is interesting to note in this context, in the final year of His ministry, go down to verse 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed." And be raised again the third day. From that time forth, he began to speak of his death. That's fascinating to me. Because this actually sheds more light, helps us to understand more and more how come Peter was just shocked when he said that. What? You are the Son of Man. You are our Messiah. What are you talking about? And what is so interesting to me is... The fact that their sacrifices pointed to him every single time they did it. How did they miss that? Same way we miss things. 
You know, we, we have the completed Word of God. We have eyewitness testimony to the things that happened, and yet sometimes we live as though there's no accountability. We live our lives according to every whim of man. But getting to his question, as he's going here, he's, he's on his way to Caesarea Philippi. This is in the further north. From here, he's going to go a few places and then begin to travel south to Jerusalem and then come in and out, but then this will be his final trip north. As he's coming to Caesarea Philippi, that's when he asks his questions. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now notice what they answer. Verse 14 says, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now by this time, John the Baptist had been beheaded. They were cousins. John the Baptist was a fireball of a preacher. Jesus had said some things that uh, raised a few eyebrows. And some thought, well, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And then they said, they said some say you're Elias or Elijah the prophet, who is also prophesied that would come. And then others say that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who uh, talked of uh, the coming Babylonians. Judgment was coming. And then they said, well, some people say one of the prophets. Notice what they didn't say. When Jesus asked his disciples, what are people saying about me? Well, who do they say that I am? They don't, at least we don't have a record, they don't answer. Well, they say that you're the Christ. They say that you're the Son of Man. They just talk about these other prophets or these other preachers. Which, that could be flattering. They were wonderful men of God, but that's not who Jesus only was. He was the Son of Man. So it's interesting to note. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody knew, because obviously he did reveal himself to some people, the woman at the well. Uh, there were those, and when, when they figured it out, he didn't deny it. But when they ask him, or when he asks them what people are saying, that's interesting to me that they... There's still a veil put over people where they're just not getting all the picture. And then he says, well, what do you say? Obviously, people are talking about Jesus. And the question is raised, who is this person? And that's what he said. Well, who is it that you say that I am? And here, Simon Peter said, well, you're the Christ, you are our Messiah, the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. They equated everything that Jesus was saying and attributed even the, the context is when he would say, I'm the son of man, that's, that's who we're talking about. That's the reason they kept asking him, are you going to restore your kingdom now? Because they were thinking of the reference, obviously, I think, in Daniel. Where, where he sees the vision and the Son of Man receives this dominion that lasts forever and ever and ever. And which is also why the other passage that Brother Matt read, where James and John, they're anticipating this arrival and they, well, we want to be right there. One on the right, one on the left. Grant that, that we could just be right there when you restore your kingdom. It's just fixing to happen as far as they're concerned. They're thinking of this Son of Man receiving the kingdom. But he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice what he says. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Now that Barjona is just a phrase that means son of Jonah. 
His name is Simon. Peter is what Jesus named him, but his given name was Simon. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. I think that is, it is noteworthy there, too, that when John, obviously, we've covered that passage in this series, that John the Baptist pointed out the Messiah. Here he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. So it isn't that, you know, and we have references to the calling of all of the disciples to Jesus and said, here he is. We found him. So it wasn't the utterance of and pointing out Jesus that he's, that he's negating here. He's talking about really grasping who the Son of Man is. You and I, when we come to know the Lord as personal Savior, uh, we probably have somebody in our lives who talked to us about salvation, somebody who pointed the way. But what we have to understand is it's not really flesh and blood that really illumines the mind. It is God that does that. And that's what he's saying here too. My Father who is in heaven has illumined your mind, has caused you to understand who I really am. It isn't flesh and blood. This is why we have to be careful that when we are building our church, when we're witnessing, when we're doing whatever it is that we're doing, that we don't treat this like a business, because that's not what it is. If anybody is saved, if, if anybody is growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they're not doing it because of what we're doing. They're doing it because of what God is doing. We're growing. We're being saved. We're being sanctified. We're getting closer in our fellowship to God because of what the Lord is doing in our lives, not as a result of somebody else. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. And so he says, it's my Father that has revealed this to you. Now, the next two verses, verses 18 and 19, if ever there were two verses in Scripture that have been misapplied, uh, uh, it's these two verses. He says in verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm not trying to get anybody mad. I'll just tell you that the Catholics will say that that means Peter is the head of the church. He was the first pope. They say that because he said, I will build my church upon this rock, and you are Peter. Peter means rock. And I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's also why you got the jokes that always start, well, Peter's standing up there at the pearly gates letting people in. That's where it comes from. But we have to understand, Peter never considered himself the head of the church. He's never been the head of the church. The only head of the church has ever been Jesus Christ. Peter never considered himself that. And, you know, another thing, what uh, Brother Matt read, that conversation with the mother of the sons of Zebedee happened after this. And another thing even happened in uh, chapter 18, uh, Matthew chapter 18. At that same time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, where are they going? They're going in the, in the direction of where James and John ended up. James and John said, 
We want to be right there, left, right. You're right on the side of you because they're thinking of the Son of Man receiving His kingdom. And here they're saying, who is the greatest? Now, you know, when when they said that, Peter didn't say, well, it's me, I got the keys, remember? He didn't say that. And Jesus didn't say, don't you remember when we were back at Caesarea Philippi? I told Peter, I'm building a church on you. You got it. Here's the keys. That was not in their mind. They knew that. They didn't understand it the way that a lot of people understand those two verses. It was not referring to Peter being the head of the church. Far from that. In fact, Peter, when he wrote his letters, he actually said to the elders, you take the oversight, but not... Uh, not not uh, being lords over God's heritage. He's talking to elders over which God has given them a position to be a teacher and said, this is God's heritage and don't you lord it over them. You're not the boss. Peter never, ever, and none, none of the other disciples ever thought that that's what Jesus meant when he said that. Well, what did he mean? It is true that Peter does mean rock. It is true that there are two different words here. Petros is the Greek word that means rock that's translated here Peter. And then rock is Petra. Now, there are different genders. Petros is uh, masculine because that's his name. It wouldn't make sense for him to have a feminine gender name. And then rock is, is, is feminine because it is referring to something that is... Um, uh, like like what we call buildings and things like that, the church, her, her, you know, the church, and, you know, she is the bride of Christ, and we talk about buildings that way, and, and all kinds of bridges, all kinds of, you know, well, she's pretty strong, you know, th- those kinds of things. That's, that's something that is common in any language. But what was he talking about? There's two main schools of thought among even missionary Baptists, and I've preached them both ways. Today... I think it's a blend of the two. He was saying, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church. He wasn't meaning Peter was the rock. We could take it one way that he was saying, on this rock, he was pointing on himself, because he is the foundation and the cornerstone. He is the head of the church. No, you know, nothing can be built beyond that. But those passages that even deal with that don't really deal with the church. You know, Ephesians 2 and 20 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, you know, the foundation of the apostles, household of faith, foundation Christ, nobody can build anything further. So uh, he's probably not even really talking about uh, those kinds of things uh, either, but here he is talking about the church. So what is he saying? Well, in the context, Peter has already admitted, confessed, you are the Christ. Notice what he said right after that in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then let's look at the last phrase. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That very same phrase he said later to them as a church. In the context of if you've got a brother that has done something, you go tell him and him alone. If he doesn't hear you, take another witness. If they don't hear the witnesses, you tell it to the church. And then he said right after that, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
When he said this to Peter, he was saying it to Peter. He was, because he said it was singular. I say to you, you know, I will give to you. He said it to Peter, but he meant what he was talking about, the confession that he had just made. Upon the rock of the confession that you just made, that I am the Christ. So whether he's saying upon this rock and pointing at himself, or whether he was meaning upon this rock that you just confessed. I will build my church. It certainly wasn't Peter. One of the reasons that we understand that it can't be Peter is because the differences in those two words. Petros is a small rock. Petra is a large boulder, immovable. So it wasn't Peter himself because it would not have been a substantial foundation at all. It was the confession that he just made that Jesus is the Christ. It's built on Jesus. It's built on the confession of Jesus. I'll build my church on what you just said, that I am the Christ. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we see the word hell, a lot of times we think of that place of torment, which it is. But in this context, hell is the Greek word Hades, which referred at this time to just a place of departed spirits. In the Old Testament, uh, we have that same kind of phrase used. The Hebrew equivalent of Hades is Sheol. And in Isaiah 38, speaking of Hezekiah, when he thought he was about to die, he said he made reference to the gates of the grave, talking about him about to die. And then also Job talked about the gates of death. So in the Hebrew's mind, when he said the gates of hell, <clears throat> he would have been referring to not just uh, the devil coming after the church, which that's part of it, <clears throat> but death is not going to stop it. He's referencing, because of what he's about to start saying, he's referencing his death. No death is going to stop what I'm going to build. It's going to continue forever. My dominion will continue forever. And when I build my church, the gates of death, the gates of hell, the gates of the grave, that's not even going to stop it. It will not prevail. And so I will give to you, yes, singular, but he's talking about Peter's confession, not Peter the man. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys implies authority. And it is speaking of a church. Now, this is probably why you hear a lot of preachers say those words when they're baptizing somebody, you know, by the authority of North Bryant Missionary Baptist Church. Now, we're not free to do just whatever we want willy-nilly. It's, it's the authority of, of God. And I've heard Brother Matt recently say those kinds of things. By the something like this, by the authority that the Lord uh, gives to us, you know, things like that. See, I'm listening a little bit. Uh, and, and I remember the first baptism I ever performed. I was talking to Brother Penn about it. You know, I was a member at Southwest before I started pastoring. And he, he said those words, just be sure you say by the authority. At that time, it was Pleasant Valley Missionary Baptist Church. And what he was trying to get me to understand is to, it's a teaching tool to let everybody else know I'm not doing this because of me. 
It is something that the church has been given authority to do by God. That's what he's saying right here. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those phrases, binding and loosing, loosening, those were rabbinical teachings. They would have been familiar with that because when they had the term to bind, it would have referred to something that was forbidden or prohibited. To loose would be something that was allowed or permitted. There was an authority that Jesus recognized, that God recognized, given to the church, his true church. Whatever they did, now, not, not they weren't free to do anything. Remember, why did he say that? It's because of what he confessed. I'll give you the keys, not because you're going to be the head of the church, but because you recognize my authority. So we're not free to do whatever we want, but if we recognize the authority of God, He recognizes the things that we do. It's almost the same thing, too, when you're witnessing to somebody, you t talk to them about being saved, and perhaps you are privileged to witness them ask Jesus into their heart, and you say something like, Welcome to the kingdom. That's an, an implied authority. Not because you got the keys and you can let anybody in that you want. It's just that you understand that Jesus is the one who is the authority. He is the one who saves. And we, if we're saved, we can welcome somebody into the kingdom of God. And, and if they reject it, they don't want to believe in Jesus as their Savior. We could just as easily say, you're shut out from the kingdom. Not because we have the authority, but because we know that Jesus is the authority. We've accepted that authority. And we, by the authority of God, can say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're not going in. You can't go in. And so when he's saying this to Peter, he's recognizing the confession that Peter just made. I'll give to you the keys, but as a church, I will recognize what you've done because I'm building my church on that kind of confession. It isn't something that is, is um, going to be prevailed upon uh, through, through death, through my death or anything else. It's going to continue. Here is another thing, just fascinating to me. Verse 20, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Why would he say that? That's just fascinating to me. I think there's two reasons. I think the first reason is the same reason that he would heal people sometimes and say, don't go tell anybody. You know, if he healed a leper, go show yourself to the priest that he might pronounce you clean. Don't be going to tell everybody else. Part of that was a misunderstanding of who he was. Because at sometimes when they understood he's got to be the one, what did they want to do? They wanted to make him king. But that's not why he came the first time. The apostles haven't even grasped that yet. They think that he's there to establish a kingdom. So he says, I don't want you to tell anybody. That's the first reason. The second reason, again, is because they're not getting it either. Because the very next verse 
From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. But Peter took him. I mean, that's physical stuff there. He took him and began to rebuke him. He didn't just say, you know, Lord, I don't understand. That's not what he was doing. He was grabbing him, bringing him over. What are you talking about? That's not going to happen to you. You see, here you've got Jesus, or Peter, proving why they don't need to be going to tell people what he just said. Don't be going to tell people who I am. Because he wanted for them, the people, to come to the same understanding the way that Peter did. Not through flesh and blood, but the Father. Revealing it to people, making them understand who he really was. He was the Son of Man. He was the Christ. But he was not coming to set up a kingdom. The end of the conversation of James and John, when he said, you, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to serve each other, because even the Son of Man came to be a ransom. A ransom. They weren't seeing that part of it. They were just saying, here's the kingdom. I want to make sure that I get what's coming to me. Peter's rebuking him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now here is, here is something that, um, again, now when we talk to people about being saved, we're, we're talking about Jesus Christ, aren't we? We're talking about he, he died for our sin. He died on behalf of us. And when we believe in that, when we accept that, when we confess our sins and we ask Jesus into our heart, you know, those phrases that we, that we say. But here you've got the apostles in the third year of Jesus' ministry. They're saved. But they don't get yet that the way for their salvation to have occurred is Jesus is going to give himself a ransom for many. They don't, they don't see it. You know, what I see there is, is the grace of God. I don't have to understand every single thing to be saved. And you don't, need, you don't have to go to the seminary. You don't have to have a degree. You don't, you don't have to know all this stuff. You don't have to be a teacher. You just have to know you need to be saved. And that the Lord's the only one who can save you. Man, that's, that's a consolation. I mean, those guys there, I knew, I know that. I know Jesus got to die. Peter didn't. He was still saved. He just confessed, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so then, I, I just, it's just amazing to me that that's such a shock to them. It is a shock because they can't get past what was said in Daniel. They see the Ancient of Days, you know, Daniel has this vision, the Ancient of Days gives unto the Son of Man this kingdom, this dominion forever and ever. And so when he comes on the scene, people are expecting, wow, it's, it's, it's here. No more having to serve the Romans. I mean, we got, the kingdom's going to be established, you know, and the disciples, they're, they're, they're anticipating it to the point that who's the greatest? It's me, right? You know? Look what Jesus said to him in verse 23. 
he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. You know, those are the very same exact words he said to Satan when he was in the wilderness being tempted. What a shock. Now, it's not in Matthew's account, but in Mark's account, it turns around and it says Jesus rebuked him. So it wasn't, it wasn't Jesus saying, now Peter. No, he took him and said, look and listen to me. You get behind me, adversary. You do not savor the things that are of God. You are an offense. You are a stumbling block. All you're looking at is the way men look at this. It was a rebuke, a harsh rebuke. And to call him Satan. Sometimes you got to talk to people that, I mean, some people just don't get it. And, say, and Peter was one of those. He was just strong-willed, and he had to be uh, taken aside and said, you're, you're not seeing this the right way. Again, the Lord has been with them. This is his third year in his ministry. But he hasn't been talking about his death yet until just now. He's been alluding to it. You know, he had those phrases uh, just as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and I will draw all men to myself. He'd been saying things like that. In fact, when he was saying things like that, and some people were trying to grasp that, <clears throat> in that context, they, they asked, now wait a minute, we have heard that Christ will live forever. We've heard out from the law that this is going to go on for, forever. But you're saying the Son of Man was, is going to be lifted up. And they knew that that fra what that phrase meant. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. Then they said, well, who is the Son of Man? Is that somebody different? They could not see that the Son of Man that Daniel was speaking about was a suffering Savior. And he was there to cause them to discover who he really was and to embrace who he really was. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, receiving a kingdom that lasts forever. But in order for all of that to take place, he first had to be a ransom. He had to be our redemption. It wasn't just going to happen the way that they were expecting it to happen. So he said, <clears throat> Peter, you are not looking at this the right way. You're looking at this the way men look at this. Which is also why he wouldn't allow people to make him king. They were trying to make him, in one passage says, make him king by force. <laughs> You're going to be our king. I mean... No, no, I'm not. I mean, they, they were that ready to be shed of Roman oppression. We need a deliverer. So he, he explains to them <clears throat> what it's going to be like to really follow the Son of Man. Jesus said to them, verse 24, He said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Another very striking phrase, to take up your cross. Now, um, 
granted, we, we have uh, a sanitized view of the cross, don't we? You know, we have jewelry in the shape of crosses and things like that. And we, you know, we talk about hardships. Oh, this is my cross to bear. And I'm not trying to trivialize your hardship. Please don't think I am. Because I don't want anybody trivializing my hardship. But the cross and the phrase, taking up your cross, would have been a stark reminder of what the Romans would do to people if they um, did not submit to Roman rule. Crucifixion is what is in mind here. And those crucified were compelled to carry their cross. Now, some people argue that it's just the cross beam, the, the horizontal beam, but they were compelled to carry this to the site of the crucifixion, which depicted their submission to Roman rule that they had been disobedient to. They were admitting that Rome does have rule over them. And so what Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You can't look at this the way men look at it. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. You have got to completely align yourself with me. So again, having an, a, an allusion to his death, pointing to his death. You've got to follow me all the way. You've got to embrace who I really am. Whosoever will save his life will lose it. And there's the paradox. It is not normal for somebody to get put themselves in harm's way. And so we recoil at that. But he says, whoever desires to preserve his own life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. How do you really have life denying yourself and take on what the Lord is wanting to give. Those who lose their own lives will find it if they do it for my sake. And then he says, what is, it profit, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall he give in exchange for his soul? Now here the word soul and the word life in the King James is the exact same Greek word. Um, we're talking about the physical life. What are you going to give in exchange for that? that I've got to give you. He said the same thing earlier in Matthew. The very same thing that he said right here, he said, and right before that, he said these words, He that loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then he goes on to say, He that takes uh, not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. And he that finds his life um, shall lose it, and he that loses his life shall find it. The, the idea here of taking up your cross is Jesus Christ comes first in every point, every part of life. He comes first. And denying yourself is denying the pleasures that you want. And that doesn't mean that uh, Christianity involves a life of poverty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that what I tell you to do, you have to do. 
You have to follow me wherever it is that I tell you to go. And in this context, they just could not wrap their heads around the fact that he's going to have to die. He kept saying that all the way to his trip, you know, meandering to Jerusalem. He kept saying that. And at one point he said it and they were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand what he was saying. They were sorry, but then they were afraid to even ask him because they just couldn't get it. How can this, how can you set up a dominion that lasts forever and ever if you die? They, they, they just couldn't grasp that. But he said, you have to follow me. You may not understand it, but you have to follow me. You have to trust me. And that's why he was so stern with Peter saying, get out of the way. Because what he said, when he said that to Satan, remember why he said it? Because Satan showed him all of the dominions of the world, didn't he? I'll give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. Now, we could argue, did he have the authority? Well, he's, he's the ruler of this world. Um... But he said, get behind me, Satan. The dominion belongs to the Lord anyway, but to get it, he has to suffer first. And that's what he's saying to, the, to these people. You, if you want to really follow me, you've got to trust me. And then, verses 27 and 28, he mentions what they are expecting. <clears throat> There's just a long pause between what's happening here. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His work. See, there's, there's a, a fulfillment of Daniel. He will come. The Son of Man will come. And then He says, Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I think what He's referring to there is the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and, and that's next week. Um, he's just saying the, 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 king, the kingdom is coming. And Peter, James, and John, they're going to see a glimpse of this. Um, but, but what we're looking at here today is Jesus in his desire to cause people to understand who he is. I am the Son of Man. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. But I'm a suffering Savior. And you must discover that. You must embrace it. You must believe it. We serve the King of Kings. But we also serve the Lamb of God. And He took away the sins of the world when we accept Him as our Savior. Would you stand please as we bow for a word of prayer? Lord, we thank You so much for this time that You've given us to be here today. We thank You, Lord, for all that You've done for us, the, the, the preservation of Your Word to remind us of uh, who You truly are. Lord, we ask that You would help us to 
think on these things and apply them to our lives that we might truly become better servants for you. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never trusted in you as personal Savior, we pray that this might be the day that salvation is found. Whatever decision is needing to be made today, we trust that your Spirit uh, can deal with the hearts of men this morning and cause us to understand what we need to do for you. We ask, Lord, you to be with our church, you be with our pastor as he serves here and his family. Forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.